Welcome to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury. Creech and I are going to discuss Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, which recently had a run at the ACT Theater here in Seattle, and Andrew was one of the stars. And I'm so lucky to be able to sit down and chat with him about the play. It's a post-apocalyptic play all about society and what happens when we lose electricity and the way that people remember culture, and in particular, The Simpsons. It's a fascinating conversation, and I'm really excited to bring it to you. This has been such a strange week. Uh, a couple days ago, the person who lives above me set fire to a cardboard box by putting it on their stove, which I don't recommend. And the sprinklers went off, flooded my apartment, and I had to move. So I am coming to you right now from an apartment three stories up from where I usually am. I just set up my equipment just so I could get this out in time. Uh, everything is a disaster in here. <laughs> but it's been a little bit of an adventure. It's been kind of exciting. It's one of those things where you're either going to get really upset or decide to have fun. And I've done a little bit of both over the last couple of days. But I'm so thrilled that I got it all together in time to get this podcast out this week. Unfortunately, my recording session with Dan DeRozier had to be canceled because my apartment was wet. And my stuff hadn't been moved yet, and now he's out of town. So we're going to get him on the show eventually. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but it's coming up. Honestly, at this point, I don't even know what's going to happen next week. Uh, I will put something together because that's... That's what I'm good at. And that's going to be really exciting for everyone involved. Anyway, let's jump into the good stuff. Here is Andrew Lee Creech discussing Mr. Burns' A Post-Electric Play. Andrew Lee Creech is here. Huzzah! Hello. <laughs> uh, you are a you're an actor. You're a comedian. You're a, a dancer. You're a, <laughs> a hip hop artist. I don't, you a, I don't know where the dancer you, part. You came served from. in the military in Guam for a few years. This uh, is true. This is. <laughs> you are French Canadian, and you are born in 1926. Uh, 19. 19- 
26 and three quarters. Yeah. Half of that was true. Who are you? Tell us who you are. I am, I am Andrew. Um, yes, I, I'm an actor, uh, writer, performer, musician, hip-hop person. I like to do all of the things. I, I, like, to, <laughs> I like to say, you know, I, I stick, I, I, <laughs> I dip my toes into many different pools and see what gets wet. Huh. If that makes sense. It does make sense. Um, it's also very erotic. <laughs> I dip them sensually. Yeah. Yeah. I light candles. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of who I am, what I do. Um, yeah. And I, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while uh, just because like the, the first time we hung out, we got in this really heated discussion about Lost. Yeah. And I was like, you got to come on the podcast. But then you acted in this play called Mr. Burns that was at the Act Theater downtown, Seattle. Yes, yes. Which was a post-apocalyptic play in which the society of the future revolves around the Simpsons. And it was fucking awesome. Uh, my my friend Audrey, uh, not the Audrey who's on the podcast all the time, other Audrey who who watched all of Star Trek The Next Generation because she heard the first episode of this podcast, so booyah. But Whoa. <laughs> she had a free Making ticket. differences. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm improving lives here, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, she invited me to the show because she had a free ticket, and I was just blown away by it. Thank blown you. Blown away by it. That's and awesome. And I was so excited to know someone in the cast and be able to say, hey, let's talk about it on the show because uh, it, it was brilliant. So why don't you, um, you give us like a quick synopsis of the play? Sure. Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me on here because at being involved in the process, I wanted to do nothing else but talk about it because it, cool. from the first moment I read the play, I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the uh, play starts off, it's a three-act play. It starts off um, in the woods uh, in the near future after uh, an unnamed post-apocalyptic event um, and we pick up with a group of survivors sitting around a campfire retelling a st- uh, an episode of The Simpsons, trying to re- recall an episode of The Simpsons together. Uh, this, so that, that continues on for 30, 35 minutes. Yeah. Uh, well, and there was some really cool things inside of that. Like, first of yes. all, the fact that there is no, like, television's gone forever. There's no, There's no more electricity. electricity. Yeah. This is how people entertain each other. They have, like... They they talk about finding food and there's like beers that are like in the river to stay cold and yeah uh, there's a, a lot of really cool little details. My favorite thing from this part was when a, a traveler runs into your campsite and he has a list of names and everyone sure. else has a list of names. Yeah, and this is something that people do almost as a greeting is like, have you seen this person? And they read off names to each other and invariably the answer is no. But these people are just kind of traveling the countryside looking for their lost loved ones. Yeah. Which there's no way to find them. Can you imagine that? Like the cell phones are gone. The grid is gone. There's no way to contact anyone. And then all you have is just like your list of people that you really want to find that you read off to strangers when you meet them on the road. Yeah. As long as they don't shoot you first because there was a tense moment when they meet. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's the other kind of crazy part about this play is that we're – it's not specifically stated in the script how far into the future or past this event, past this event that we are when we come into the play. In our production, we were thinking somewhere in between four and six months, I believe. After, in the, oh, after the event. After the event. Yeah. Um, and uh, That's the impression I got was something oh, close good. like that. Good, good, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's still very much, you know, people are uncertain. Um Whoever, you know, you have to kind of keep a tight perimeter because you don't know 
who's going to come out of those woods and yeah. are they friendly or not. And what I think personally is, you know, because when we come into it, we're on the property of one of the characters. You know, it's their property basically, and they have a house somewhere nearby. Mm-hmm. And we're in the woods instead of in the house, which is fascinating to me. Um, yeah. You, you know, you might normally go, wow, maybe a house might be safe. But in this world, a house is like a beacon almost, right? Saying, hey, come rob me, come loot me. There might be something here. So yeah. it's interesting that they would choose to kind of not be in the house and be out in the woods. Yeah. And I mean, also, there's no light. You know, there's like, no light. If they want to have a campfire, they got to go outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one of the characters is like, almost mute because she's so scarred by whatever has happened to her. Yeah. And she can't talk, um, which was really interesting. And, like, the crew is really protective of her. And then the new guy who comes in remembers some lines from this episode of The Simpsons that they're trying right. to retell. And that instantly allows him into the group because uh, then they can continue with a closer approximation of the episode that yeah. they couldn't have done before. Yeah. Which was so cool. It was really interesting. Well, and it's just, it's, it's crazy because I feel like at that moment when, when we come in and, and they're retelling this story, it's almost like this is the first time that these people have been able to laugh in months. Yeah. Um, and especially with the mute character you're talking about, I feel like that's actually the reason why they're not in the house. I feel like they were in the house and um, some raiders came by and there was this huge, you know, event and, and eventually what happens is her daughter ends up getting uh like kidnapped and raped and and murdered and that's what she's she, I don't know if you remember but she has this little backpack and that's her daughter and then when they at, when they're rattling off off the list of names and and uh, Maria goes um Becca age 12 we know you don't have her and whispers and it's like yeah cuz we found uh, her body and we buried her and didn't tell that's right yeah so it's like and, and it's it's a crazy, crazy kind of world to live in. So now yeah. it's like these people have finally, you know, they're trying to figure out a way to stay positive and, and The Simpsons is the thing that they happen to be talking about that night. Yeah. And that's kind of what uplifts them. And then, so, yeah, when that guy comes in and drops some knowledge, then, of course, it's like, yes, this is what's valuable. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. In a world where there's no more electricity, no more anything, what is valued is the things we remember. Yeah, and th- that really struck a chord with me because I am the type of person who has dedicated myself to like creating entertainment mm-hmm. because I think that that is what makes society. You know, art is what makes society. Sure, and common like, common things that we all enjoy. Like that's what brings people together, and it's incredibly important. And this play really highlighted that fact, which says like th- this is what matters to these people, and this is what's going to bring them closer together in this time of crisis. Yeah. And, that really, I don't know, that really made me feel like what I do with my life was, life was worthwhile in a way. Yeah, you know totally, what I mean? totally. Yeah. Uh, so take us into Act 2. Uh, act 2 picks up seven years later. And at this point, we come into the act and we're coming in in the middle of uh, a staged uh, commercial. <laughs> and basically what is happening here is uh, the, the same group of people has uh, they've formed a traveling theater company, um, and th- there are actually competing theater companies out in the world. And 
you know. So our our group specifically is doing The Simpsons, and there are a couple other groups out there also doing The Simpsons. But there's also a group doing West Wing episodes. <laughs> a, I didn't pick that up. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a group doing the oh, West Wing I episodes. Love that. Uh, there's another group called the Shakespeare's, um, and they they specialize in the Shakespeare, you know, uh, catalog. And <laughs> so it, it's interesting because we kind of see this duality of how art is the thing that is important and is meaningful, but then we also see how it also has become a commodity, mm-hmm. right? And it is the thing that we need to do in order to survive. If we like, And so all the stakes are really heightened in this act because now we're rehearsing our show, we're rehearsing an episode of The Simpsons, we're rehearsing these commercials, and we're trying to figure out ways to make them better. And the idea is, like, if these commercials suck or if our episodes suck we don't eat right we can't afford and and that's the other crazy thing about this society is uh <laughs> fine miles come on miles miles wants to be in the Aww. podcast too come here buddy miles. um that's the other crazy thing about this society is that uh ann washburn who is the playwright did such a great job of writing a play and creating a world that so much is there without it actually being talked about. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a very uh, Chekhovian way of writing where it's like all, everything you need is there in the script. If you're smart and you do your work and your due diligence. So when you're in this society, you know, you have to kind of go, okay, if there's no electricity and there's all these things are no longer, you know, society is no longer how we know it, then that also means that there's no such thing as money. Mm -hmm. So we have to assume then, if that is true, then there's some sort of barter system in place, Yeah, which is also seen in the second act when they're talking about trading diet soda, you know, diet Diet Coke for, uh, for lithium batteries and stuff like that. So then it's such a crazy place to live in because then you're like, Okay, so what is it that people need in order to survive? And what is it that people have that is of value? And, you know, so we're almost thinking that there are times where people have to, you know, prostitute themselves out and do all of these, all these crazy things in order to survive. Because if someone comes up to you and they say, hey, I have a line from, you know, Lisa the Vegetarian, but I don't want anything you're offering. <laughs> I want something else. It's like... You kind of have to do that because we have to. We have to eat. We have to continue to survive. Yeah, um, I loved the idea that as they travel, people would try to sell them lines of dialogue. Yes, and it's like they remember a line from this episode, but people are obviously start to take advantage of that very quickly. Where they say they remember a line, and maybe it's not actually true, or they're just trying to mm-hmm. you know get some get some lithium batteries or something like that. So there's this whole uh, marketplace of dialogue happening out in the world and then there's you guys competing against this other Simpsons group who has more episodes than you do and there's some sort of like agreement where you can buy whole episodes or like you can perform episodes or they can't uh something like that was going on I thought that was super interesting yeah yeah and it really reminded me of medieval times where you have traveling groups of performers who go from place to place and perform and that's how they make they're living, and they they basically just perform for food. So, uh, I mean, basically kind of how we exist now as performers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> That's all we get. Uh, so I just I thought it was such a, a brilliant way of kind of parsing out what society would be like 
and how creativity would be valued in the in this post-apocalyptic future. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Well, yeah, I mean, everything you're saying right on right on the money. It's I love it because it's it's very much like this. Society has a way of building up and building up and building up and then it all comes crashing down and down and down and then rebuilds itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I mean, we see it in history and, and you know, archaeology and the things yeah. that we discover. I, gosh, there was this, I can't remember the name of the, the, um, the device. It's some crazy name, but it was found in a shipwreck um, off the coast of Greece and it was basically... Like one of the first analog computers ever discovered, and it had what? like a crazy amount of gears, and it had uh, all these markings on it that basically had all the constellations and all oh of these, God. all of this information, primitive way of kind of looking at the stars, and and like when they found it, it was like this is technology that would not have existed for you know the first recorded <laughs> recordings of this kind of technology was like something like 700 800 years before or after it was wow. it would have it's been dated basically carbon dating that's amazing so it's like how where the hell did this come from how did anyone figure out how to build this and it's got all these gears and, and to me that's just a testament to what this play is it's like we get to a certain point in society and then it all comes crashing down and we either learn something from it or we don't. But either way, we start to build back up. And so right. it's this idea that, you know, um, history, I always like to say that history doesn't, because what, what's the phrase? They say history. Um, history repeats itself. History repeats itself. I like to say history spirals. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily repeat itself in the same ways, but it spirals and spirals and continues forward and, and kind of comes back to certain things. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I've been, have you seen The Last Man on Earth, the new show with Will Forte? I have not, no. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic comedy, and it's absolutely brilliant. It touches on a lot of similar things, and there's just like a couple of people alive, and when they have a disagreement in season two, they have to figure out how do we punish people. So they use the stocks to punish people, oh. which is super medieval, but... It works for them because what else are they going to do, you know? Right. Like they have to come up with something uh, and it's like a timeout almost. Like if you if you don't behave within the rules of society, we don't have police officers, we don't have jails. Like there's sure. only like seven of us or something. So we're just going to put you in the stocks because that's all we can think of. And when you see uh, like a character in the stocks, it's really upsetting at first huh. because you kind of feel like, well, that's – that's, that's like so against society. You know, it's like anti-society to do that. Like we have this modern society. We built up to the point where we don't need things like that. Right. But the reason we don't need things like that is because we have other things that do that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> we have jails. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the idea of if, if, if we end up in a, in a post-apocalyptic situation, things from like the dark ages are going to come back. Exactly. Yeah. We go, I mean, you know, it's, you know, philosophers, you know, talk about this and they say that, you know, oh, God, I'm, I'm spacing on my, my, my philosophy lessons <laughs> right now. But um, that's fine because I don't even have any. <laughs> there's one who basically says, you know, without the, the um, constraints of modern society that we would just all be running around stealing and killing 
you know, doing, taking whatever we needed for survival. Like it's, it's the idea that mankind at some point banded together and was like, okay, to ensure our survival, we're going to make these agreements. I won't kill you or steal these things. And we'll, we'll band together and work for these things in order to ensure our survival. Right. We, we kind of made these, these pacts with each other. And that's basically what it is. And it's like when those are not in place anymore, we go right back to our animalistic brains and our animalistic, you know, way of way of survival. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it's not all that out there is the scary thing is that yeah. if we were to lose all electricity somehow, I mean, what would happen? Probably something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it's, and especially with this, the event they're kind of alluding to in this play is something that might be like a a very fast spreading plague Mm -hmm. that just took out a lot of people very quickly, which then, you know, everyone started diverting their attentions to the hospitals and trying to get people well, which pulled focus away from the nuclear power plants and, and not only pulled focus away from them, but the people who were running them got sick and died and there were no, you know, no oh, one was left. Okay. Yeah. So it was like this plague that led to nuclear disaster because the wow. things that we had created, we could no longer contain because of the sickness. Interesting. Right? So yeah, it's, it's the I didn't idea. pick that up. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and so then it's the idea that it's like, well, now we're in this world where there are maybe less than a million people, you know, coming into the second act seven years later. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, there, you know, cause I, I heard someone talk about the play and they're like, it's stupid because th- someone could have just found batteries to run a DVD player and watch episodes of the Simpsons, or someone would have discovered how to like hook up wind power. And I'm like, yes, there are people who can do that. But when a plague wipes out like everyone and especially all those people who have that knowledge, the knowledge is what dies with them. Right. And that's and that's the key thing. And that's what the whole play is about. Once people die, the only thing we're left with is the memory of mm-hmm. what they had and the stories that we share and and tell each other. So it's you know, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about that all the people who had that knowledge just die and now all of a sudden we're you know we're scrambling right we're flailing right and and there's a lot of places that you can't go because there's been these huge nuclear disasters sure uh, yeah so they i mean they can't go within like hundreds of miles of the the nuclear sites and yeah i mean it, there's like pock marks of death all over the yeah, countryside exactly um yeah so that's that's acts 1 and 2 and then there's an intermission and i was loving the play I'm like, this is great. I'm really excited to see what happens in Act Three, and then like the the lid of sanity is pulled off, and it goes buck wild, and it was awesome, <laughs> and it 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 made perfect sense. It worked within the world that they were setting up, and sure. I think made a really solid statement and commentary about humanity and what we are capable of as a culture. Um. Well, take it away. <laughs> Tell us about it. I mean, it. the third act picks up 75 years in the future. So now we're 82 years away from when we first started this play. Yeah. And it's it's a wild ride. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, the Simpsons now have, uh, and it's the same episode that we've been talking about from the first act, which is the episode of uh, the Cape Fear episode of the Simpsons from season five 
where Sideshow Bob is trying to kill Bart, and they all they go on the houseboat and they do the whole it's a whole Cape Fear parody. Yeah. Um, but so we take that through the second act, and then so when we come back to the third act, the Simpsons have now kind of become this ritualized um, performance, theatrical performance experience um, that we are walking into, performed by completely new actors. Um, I mean, we're the same. The cast is the same, but we're not playing the same characters we were playing from the first and second act. We're 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 seventy five years in the future, right? Yeah. So presumably, all those people are dead, which is just a trippy way to start this act in the first place. <laughs> because then you're going, everything we're talking about in the third act are things that none of the people who are talking about them have ever experienced. Right. Right. There's a there's a moment where Homer uh, oh and the whole third act is a song operetta as well. <laughs> I, I, I should mention that. We come out and we basically perform a ritualized, uh very almost religious sort of uh performance of the Cape Fear episode and we do it in masks and Simpsons masks and crazy makeup and 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 do singing and dancing and weird craziness. Um, it's very much like a pagan ceremony. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. And the masks are very disturbing. The makeup is very disturbing. And the uh, the Mr. Burns character is the most maniacally evil character you could imagine. Right. Which is also fascinating because in the original episode, it, it's Sideshow Bob who's trying to kill Bart. Yeah. But throughout these 82 years, it's somehow been distorted and it has become Mr. Burns. Yeah. And I mean, kind yeah. Of weird... No one who's ever seen The Simpsons is still alive. No one who's ever seen The Simpsons is still alive. And they're singing about playing cards and drinking hot cocoa. And it's like none of these people have ever had hot cocoa. They talk about um, calling people on the telephone and, 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 you know, refrigerators. And it's like (laughs) they don't know what any of that is. Right. Which, gosh, I, wa- I want to go back to the second act at some point and talk about the commercials, too. Oh, yeah. I, would, I actually I had more to say about that, too. I forgot. We'll come back to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, so that the third act is, is this crazy, this crazy ritualistic experience. And um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so strange because you follow Bart on this journey and he is the hero he's the hero i mean it's the hero's journey and he is our hero and you kind of see how how theater itself the 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 uh art of theater kind of came to be came into existence through this play you know it's and storytelling in general it starts off with people gathered around a campfire acting out stories <laughs> right like this is a very primitive thing and it eventually, you know, it, it it evolves into language and writing and writing and, and all of these different forms. Um, but you followed you follow Bart. And the crazy thing about this act for me is that it is it almost feels like it's this is the way it shows how art evolves and and kind of becomes this thing that we use to express ourselves and and not express ourselves, but get ourselves through tough times. Because I Mm -hmm. think that human beings want to make sense of the world around them naturally, right? We want to understand things. And that's why anytime something bad happens, we have to find either someone to blame or find a way to make sense of it. And this to me is just like an example of how, of uh, one example of how people made sense of, 
an apocalyptic disaster, and it yeah. was through The Simpsons, and it's through Bart that we we get to experience that. It's like The Simpsons, everyone dies, and The Simpsons, this family is the family that survives, and now they're going on their, you know, to their final destiny, their, towards their final agony are the lyrics that we sing. Uh. And, um, and, and Mr. Burns becomes this symbol of, of nuclear disaster. He runs the nuclear power plant. Yeah. Right? In, oh, in that's probably why he was, uh, like, over time became more of the villain is because uh, so exactly. the whole third act to me felt like they were using the Simpsons as a parable for the raping of planet Earth, you know? Exactly, yes, yeah. and, and to a degree. Because Absolutely. Mr. Burns becomes like a rapist in that, and that was very difficult to watch. Like, he... Uh, is like sexually violent towards sure. towards Lisa, right? Yeah, yeah, and 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 also because and it also goes back, and this is why it's so brilliant too, because it also goes that goes back to the Cape Fear movie starring um, uh, Robert De Niro. I haven't seen that. Yeah, he does. He does stuff like that. Oh, really? He, he's like you know, and they talk about it in the first huh. act where they're like, you know, he bit Ileana Douglas's face in the movie, and 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 he makes Juliet Lewis suck his fingers, Ugh. and that's where where that seeps back into Mr. Oh, Burns and how he treats Lisa. Yeah. So it's all relative. It all spirals and comes back. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but these and- people don't know why, right? They've never seen Cape Fear. They don't know. That this is Robert De Niro. That they don't. All it is is right. what this Simpsons episode has evolved into. I feel like the level of violence needed for catharsis on the part of the audience is is relative to the experience of the viewer. So mm-hmm. in this world where everyone has grown up in this really fucked up, violent world where yeah. people are like, people are. Like pirates are coming through and stealing everything you own, and yeah. and like raping and killing people. The the villain in the stories that they would tell would be very, very evil. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our society, we live in a pretty um, structured society, and the villains that really make sense for us are usually kind of biblical, mm-hmm. like the emperor in yeah. Star Wars is the devil. Sure, I mean, sure. It, uh, Sauron. In Lord of the Rings, is the devil. <laughs> yep. And our our evil is kind of this all encompassing pure evil that's not really personified very well. It's just like this is everything that's bad. Uh, Voldemort is the devil. Right. But Mr. Burns is like a is like a in Act Three, Mr. Burns was kind of like an angry stepfather, like an angry mm. violent person who would be in the room with you and physically harm you. Right. Um, which is so much more frightening. And for for the catharsis of like Bart to triumph, it needs to be really dark because the people who've lived through this apocalypse and who grow up in this apocalypse at this point, uh, that's that's what they need for sure. the catharsis. That's sure. why the art goes to that depth. And it's really shocking for someone in our society to watch. And I think that the first two acts build you to the point where you can get it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it'd be too much. If you started with act three, it'd just be like, Ridiculous. I mean, it would be oh, too yeah. violent. Oh, yeah. It'd be too too much to watch. Yeah, absolutely. But um, through the context of what, what had been set up, it worked brilliantly. And it made me think. It made me, like, squirm. It, sure. Uh, it really made me kind of examine my own relationship to art and, and the way I experience it, my relationship to theater, uh, my relationship to culture and society, and mm-hmm. I just adored it. 
Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you were great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I, I have to echo all the things that you're saying. And it's just like the violence that you're talking about. I, Mr. Burns, spoiler alert, Mr. Burns ends up killing the entire Simpsons family. Everyone except Bart. Yeah. Bart is the only one who lives again, which is why I say he's our hero. But you experience, and that's how, again, I feel like we make sense of our world because some of the, the final lyrics that Bart sings are, uh, um, and now that I've lost everything, all I have is everything, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea that it's like once a apocalyptic event, sure, or let's say, you know, we can take it that far, but when I think about it and I take it down to a much smaller level, then it's, you know, the times that I've lost um, I've lost a pet or I've lost a family member, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like w- that experience of intense loss can make one feel like dying and make one feel like there's nothing else. But in this story, you see that losing someone, you're left with the memory of them and that one, and even after you lose someone, all you have left is the rest of your life and the rest of everything else. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you, and that's, and you continue on. And Mr. Burns, you know, the last thing he yells before he disappears is, uh, uh, I don't go away. I'll be here for a thousand years, a hundred thousand years, a million years. I will be here, Bart Simpson. And which is also fascinating. To, and there's, that's, you know, kind of, there's a duality there because he's of course talking about how, traumatic experiences just don't go away yeah. you have to live with them yeah um and then also he's you know personifying the nuclear disaster which of course nuclear fallout just doesn't go it, it sticks around a while right um right but what i really like about this play also is is kind of oh man i just i just dropped it i just dropped it <laughs> oh what was it don't do this to me, brain. <laughs> that happens to me a lot. Oh, um, well, I'll, I'll continue talking anyways, <laughs> and hopefully it'll come back. Um, I love, it, it also kind of has these, uh, these, these nods to 9-11 in this strange way. Yeah. So it, it feels like this play is sort of, and I, I don't see a lot of theater that kind of responds to 9-11. It's, it's interesting because I feel like that was a huge event for our country, and it was something that we needed to deal with, and I don't see a lot of dealing with it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, um, so this totally felt like that to me, especially because in the first uh, the first song we sing in the first act is retelling um, through the Simpsons world, retelling the nuclear disaster, and it's you know Troy McClure on the radio going, "Everyone, stay calm. No need to you know evacuate your homes. Stay the put." And all of this thing, and then and the the whole chorus is you know sort of like a Greek Simpsons chorus, singing about survivors struggling to their cars, and 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 sing you know across the parking lot their bodies strewn. And then there's one lyric that straight up says, where that um, um, uh, uh, what what's the whole line? Where the well the the punchline the the B line is um. Where the towers were are two pillars of light. And Whoa. it's like straight up like that's 9-11. And it's like this is the way people – and it, to me it was exactly like this is how people make sense of the world around them. Yeah. They find a way to kind of 
grasp on to anything they can. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just, of course, that's talking about the nuclear power plant as well. But I think it's intentional. Yeah. And I think if you, you know, do some digging and find out, you know, read some articles that Anne Washburn has written about her play, I think you'll find it in there somewhere that 9-11 heavily in, influenced this piece. But Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was also uh, super impressed with all of the actors in the play because you're not just acting. I mean, the first act, you're just delivering dialogue. But then in the second act, you're acting out these commercials, you're acting out The Simpsons, and then there's this, uh, out of nowhere, there's this song and dance number that combines all of these pop culture things. Because you guys aren't just performing The Simpsons, you're trying to recreate a moment in pop culture history. Like that's why you're doing the commercials is that you want to provide the feeling of sitting down and watching TV to someone and the commercials were a part of it. So they need to be there and they need to be right. And then like you were talking about the refrigerator and stuff like the commercials were all talking about like showers and they were trying to recreate the sound of a shower. Yes. um, Yes. Give people that whole experience of living in the society that is gone. Um, And then the whole musical number at the end of the second act had little bits and pieces of all of these different pop culture things that were wild, widely removed from each other. But it was just kind of um, a medley of this is what we've lost. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, so everyone had to dance and sing and, and do all this stuff. So all of you were uh, like multi-talented individuals. Yeah, we had to, yeah, we had to do a lot. <laughs> and we're, and, and you know, with the exception of one or two of us in that cast, we weren't really musical theater people. Really? Yeah. So that was a very, uh, which I'm I'm grateful for. I'm glad that they took a chance on, you know, they were like, we'd rather have really good actors than, you know, really great singers and uh, huh. actors. It, I mean, at least my, yeah, how I saw it. But um, I think it added to it. I mean, because you have these people playing a family and the family is singing to the best of their ability. Right. And, uh, the singing was great. I mean, there was no point where I was like, these are bad singers. I never thought that. Sweet. Uh, but I, you know, it just felt like honest and real and well-performed. Sure. Yeah. And the people who, I mean, those actors aren't supposed to be professional singers. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, no, I'm really glad you picked up on the commercials. Yeah. That's That's one of my favorite parts about this script is trying to provide that sense of nostalgia to a society <laughs> lost, right? Yeah. It's, they talk about the showers, and at one point um, they're talking about, um, you know, there's a whole song called Hectic Day where she's, <laughs> they're singing about this, you know, crappy day this woman had, um, and she comes home from work and, you know, comes home to her husband, and they sit on the couch and watch TV. But she talks about how someone is stealing lunches from her from the refrigerator at work and that, <laughs> the, you know, the, uh, the lights, the... Um, the uh, the lights at work are are annoying and getting to her, and it's it's just so funny because it's like the worst part of your day was having someone steal your lunch, and lights were too bright. <laughs> that is so not the society we're living in now, right. where people are getting murdered every day for you know diet coke, right? <laughs> you know, um, and it's yeah. She's like at one point she's like yeah, um, someone even took his you know sweet and sour Chinese 
pineapple pork fried rice. <laughs> it's like nobody says the entire title. No one right. just says my fried rice. You know, no one says the whole thing. And so it's almost like it becomes this weird um, porn. It's like, yeah, it's like it's culture weird. porn. Culture like, porn, the exactly. Things that, things that we can't have anymore. We're just going to be re- reminded of them, and it like makes it, you feel more human. Totally. But that, that only happens when people still remember. It goes away by the time you get to this pagan ritual. Yeah. Because the things that were shouted the loudest when these when the next generation was young are the things that survive. Right. And what was shouted the loudest was the story of the Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you have these people competing, trying to, you know, make the most the, make the best life for themselves yeah. by performing the Simpsons. So I, I, it was really fascinating to me, the idea that something that was important to your parents becomes sort of mythogized. Is that mm. a word? Myth, uh, mythogized? Mythologized, Mythologized, maybe? yeah. I, yeah. Uh, mythologized. I like mythogized. I, <laughs> <mythogized>. <laughs> <laughs> That's the band name, and their first album is The Race to Hamanatra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so it, it was this look into how a religion is created. Yes. Because... When when your parents talk about something with reverence, you don't necessarily understand the context when you're a child. Right. And as you grow up, you you create your own context around it. So after a couple of generations, the context is lost and a new context has replaced it. Sure. Which is one of uh, kind of bizarre reverence for The Simpsons. If anyone who performed in that place like 82 years in the future were to see an episode of The Simpsons, to see that episode, Cape Fear, mm-hmm. they would be horrified, absolutely horrified. They would say, this is what my society is based off of? Right. It's a fucking cartoon. You know? <laughs> they would be horrified, but they don't know what a cartoon is. You right. know? It's gone. Like Cartoons are gone. They just don't understand. There's a, a vague understanding of what the characters looked like because – Back in the day, seven years after the disaster, they were trying to dress like the characters. Yes. And those costumes became more and more distorted over time. The masks became more and more, like, pagan and weird-looking. And because we're using, in the second act, we're using found objects yeah. to create the costumes. Yeah. Absolutely. So it just makes me wonder about all of the things that build up around any organized religion. Where do they come from? What was the impetus for them? What is the relationship we have now and what was the relationship we had to that thing then? Exactly. And where where did it become something to be revered? Mm-hmm. And this play asks those questions. Yeah. In, in, a, in a really cool way that sounds ridiculous when you're told what it is, but works 100% of the way through. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, there are a lot of people out there who think that Jesus was... Like just a groovy guy who like yeah. traveled around and like you know with a fish T-shirt and like <laughs> <laughs> he loved the jam, bands. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know Birkenstocks and like you know helped people out. And, yeah, and somehow over the course of history, just became this figure of reverence and and God's son and all of these things. Yeah, and it's like, how did that occur? I think about how many different versions of Santa, like the the evolution of Santa Claus, <laughs> the Krampus, yeah, the yeah. Krampus, exactly. <laughs> the, you know, um, Sinterklaas, you know, from G- the Germany, you know, German Germanic uh, origins of Santa Claus, Sinterklaas, and how he just this figure just evolves, and it's like, yeah, yeah. that's it. That's totally it. Because I mean, look at look at how we reboot Spider Man. Over yeah. and over again. Sure. Uh, and it's happening in quick succession now. Three reboots. 
in, in like in my years. adult life, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is insane. But the the same stories being retold over and over again in a way that will hopefully uh, resonate more profoundly with the culture of the moment. Right. So exactly. If that's if a story is being retold constantly, like The Simpsons was in this environment. They are constantly trying to find the best way to perform it. Mm-hmm. And the society is changing constantly because it just went through this huge shakeup. So as the society puts itself back together, the way that the story is told needs to change in order to affect the same response from the audience. Absolutely. So, And it yeah. inherently changes, especially when you see in the second act that people start coming up you know, with like, oh yeah, I remember, I totally remember this line. Let me sell it to you. And they're just making shit up. Right. You know, so, I mean, and even in the first act, they start misremembering things. You know, they, one of the characters mistakes Sideshow Bob for Mr. Burns in in the first act. It's like, I thought Mr. Burns, the fish with three eyes, remember? And and he's like, no, no, no. I loved that. I love that because it was foreshadowing. Exactly. So cool. So it it, it goes to show, and the, you're, what you're talking about is really great because it's, you know, the way memory functions. Uh-huh. Every time you remember something from the past, you don't actually remember the past event. You remember the last time you told <laughs> the story of that past event. So the, right. the, the more you retell, the more you remember, the further you get away from the actual truth of it. Absolutely. Um, it's like, I, you know, I, my parents used to tell me, you know, um, you used to flick peas at people when you were an infant. And they tell me that so much that eventually, you know, one day I caught myself saying, oh, yeah, I totally remember when I was a kid, I used to flick peas at people. I don't fucking remember that. (laughs) You're a goddamn pea flicker. Right. (laughs) But I start to take on these false memories, you know? So Yeah, yeah. totally. Totally. I, I, on the, I think it was the second episode of Sci-Fi on Trial, John said something about how we love nostalgia because it connects your identity together, Mm. which... I don't remember him saying in the room when we recorded it, but when I listened back, I was like, that is fucking profound, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, like, that's why it gives us this warm, fuzzy feeling is because we we suddenly see ourselves as a story and we and it's a story that we could maybe tell. Yeah. Because try to tell your own story is so difficult because your memory is growing as you get older. Um, but then you get older and your memory, your brain develops and then you start to remember things better. So yeah. it's easier for me to say what happened when I was 24 than it is to say what happened when I was four, obviously. Right. obviously. But I, I would imagine that when I'm, I'm 31 now, I'll bet that when I'm 51, uh, the difference between remembering when I was 40 and, the, and remembering when I was 20 will not be as far as the difference between remembering when I was 20 and remembering when I was four now. Sure, sure, you know what sure. I mean? Yeah, yeah because as your brain is more developed, it can remember these things better. And I wonder if culture is like that too. I wonder if as our culture has gotten older, uh, because of the tools that we've created to remember what's happened, it's gotten easier to remember. So yeah. maybe our, maybe we're in our middle age, you know, like where we, our brains are developed now. We have the means to record everything that's happening and yeah. everyone is. Like I was bored last night. So I went on Periscope for the first time just to see what people were doing. And John Lovitz was walking his dog, you know, like John Lovitz was walking his dog on Periscope. John Lovitz was at a sushi restaurant eating sushi, Just t- like talking to the camera saying, is this what you want to see? Are you jealous? 
Like that's that's what he was that's doing. Amazing. So people are now recording. I mean, obviously Periscope is not meant to record, right? But people are recording little tiny moments in their lives constantly. So connecting our own identity together is becoming easier and easier because I can look at a video of myself five years ago and say that's who I was. Yeah, which was not possible before, and now it's just like little tiny things all the time. So I wonder as our culture crosses into that time in our cultural lifespan. What is that going to do to us moving forward? Can we avoid an apocalyptic event if we're more aware of who we are as a society? I, I, I almost want to say no. Really? And this is why, and I think, and it's, and it's fascinating because we are, although our, and this is why I like the idea of the post-electric play where there's uh-huh. no more electricity because it's this idea that we're, we've become so reliant on electricity, on technology that we don't, we kind of forget to live a little bit. Like I, when I go to concerts now, I see people recording the stage concert and watching the concert through the phone that they're recording it on instead of actually watching the concert and being present for that. Right. Um, and, and so that, that makes me believe that there's some kind of disconnect that's happening in our society, which is which is actually maybe not for the best, right? I I, I have a friend who just had this uh, baby nephew born, and all the way across the country, and and the father was on the other side of the country saying hi to this newborn infant via iPad, FaceTime, wow. right? And the and you could see the baby pawing at the screen trying to get some like uh-huh. physical human interaction and couldn't. Wow. And that was just profound to me because I was like, my gosh, it's starting so early. This child has no idea what to even how to even process this information. My a human being is right there, but I can't oh my God. I can't touch. Ugh. I can't feel. It gives me the the willies for right? some reason. So I um I don't know. And then what I'm what I feel like I'm starting to see in society now is, you know, going back to what you're talking about um, uh, about enemies and, and kind of post-apocalyptic things, apocalypse, how it comes about. Yeah. I feel like we're starting to see a shift, um, you know, in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, kind of everything prior to 2000s. We've seen movies where um, the enemies are the British, you know, Star <laughs> Wars, you know. We're, yeah. we're seeing... You know, during the Red Scare, you know, it was all Russians and and the communists and all of these things. We had someone else, you know, someone else to blame. And we're starting to see all these, like, natural disaster movies now. And we're starting to see, you know, things like Mr. Burns, which is like we're kind of figuring out that we're we're realizing that our own downfall is going to be because of us. And And I think America specifically is like, because every empire rises and they fall at some point. And I think America is starting to realize that it's going to happen to us at some point. But I don't know that we're going to, I don't know that we'll have the foresight to prevent it. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm going to argue the opposite for technology because yeah. I, I think about this a lot. Uh, you know, my sister is a very outdoorsy person and I'm a very, indoorsy person. I love the outdoors, but I spend most of my time doing stuff like this, you know, sitting down, recording podcasts, working on music, working on music videos. Uh, When I'm not at work, like that's what I'm doing. Uh, And that's indoorsy stuff where I'm using technology constantly. 
just to to create what I want to create. When I was a kid, I didn't have those tools. So when I wanted to create music, I was sitting with a guitar, you know, which of course I still do all the time. But now I have all these tools where I can create complex music by myself. Like compositions. Compositions, yeah. Masterpieces, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, or I can, you know, record this podcast. If all goes well, this is going to come out today, you know, because I'm, I'm late on my schedule. So, <laughs> uh, so but I, can, I have the tools to do that. I have the tools to, for you and I to sit down and have this conversation. At, uh, it's almost three o'clock right now. And then I'm hoping that by seven o'clock tonight, other people all over the all over the world have the possibility to listen to it, whether yeah. or not they are or not. That remains to be seen. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, there are people that listen to the show who live in other countries. You sure, know? sure. Um, there are in other states for sure. So that's incredible. Like that's incredible. Yeah. And totally listening to two, you know, young people talk about society and what it means. I think that's important. Be not not necessarily that we're saying anything important because who are we, but, but more the fact that we're thinking and right. we're talking and sure. we're processing. The fact that the conversations are taking place. Exactly. And Absolutely. that maybe by listening to this, someone else will have a conversation with someone else. None of that's possible without technology, right? That's a very human that's, moment that's, that's happening. That's yeah, legit. That's happening because of technology. So do, are those moments possible without technology? Absolutely. Do they spread further with technology? Yes. Is that good? Absolutely. Right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, in, in, this, in this instance, yes. Yeah. And um, but think- also, uh, to counter that, there's also a lot of uh, nonsense that can be spread and, and bad things that can be... Not, you know, I'm not trying to get into... One man's nonsense is another man's gold. I mean, Batman Forever is our fucking gold, and it's someone else's nonsense. That's fair. I, and it's not, it's not up to the individual, I think, to make a judgment call on what is and isn't nonsense. Because to me... The Phantom Menace was utter nonsense until I, until I really examined it, and then it was just kind of nonsense, you know. <laughs> like I found some things to like about it, and I also saw it in a in a cultural viewpoint that was different. And then I learned about all these people who grew up with it who love it because it's the thing that just makes them happy because they it was presented to them when they were at that perfect moment in in their life to experience it, sure. and that's fucking valuable. So, so nonsense is really important to me. <laughs> I am a big fan of buffoonery. Um, <laughs> you will suffer this buffoonery. <laughs> I will suffer so much buffoonery. I mean, I, that being said, I have so little patience for things that I think are nonsense. Right. But just because I think they're nonsense doesn't mean that I don't want them to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I, I listen to, I try a lot of podcasts that I just hate. Mm-hmm. And I watch a lot of movies that I think are garbage. And I'm just like, why the fuck did they make that? But then I'll talk to someone else who loves it. I'm like, all right. If someone loves this, then it's worthwhile. Then it's what, worth being, yeah. Yeah, what's the point of art is to, to enjoy. Yeah. And, and the, the cultural conversation is much bigger than any one person or any one city or any one country can encapsulate. It's the world. And we're, we're getting into a point in history where we are a global society. Like we're, we're not there at all, but we're getting there. And sure. the internet is the reason that that's happening. Sure. And if we're going to survive, it's because we become a global society. Uh, I mean, if we can avoid a post-apocalyptic event, it's because we, because we're thinking globally and universally, and and getting off of this planet and spreading ourselves out and um, looking to the future in a way that we have not yet done. Finding new technologies that can change the way we exist. Have you heard about Li-Fi? 
No. It's it's Wi-Fi, but with light. So uh, just like regular light bulbs will blink faster than the eye can see, but those blinks will translate to ones and zeros that uh, any device in the room with the light on will be able to pick up. And it's it's basically like an optical transmission of data, but you don't need anything except for a a light bulb to make it work. That's crazy. You walk into any room that has lights on and you have internet. That's crazy. That's real. Like this has happened already. And it where just, did, where is this? Where has this happened? It's like it's been invented, uh, and now they're trying to figure out how to make it work in like a real environment. You know, mm. like it works in a lab, and I don't. Right. Uh, and they have like the potential for th- these insane speeds, but I don't know if they've made that happen yet. But right. the technology to make this happen exists, which is thrilling. I mean, it's really really cool. So I'm I'm just like the huge fan of technology, and I. Okay, go ahead. No, no, yeah. no, no, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah, I, and I don't think technology is the problem, and mm-hmm. that's why I say I'm, I see ourselves being, we get in our own way. Yeah, and that's the thing. I'm, I think I love, I love a lot of technology, but it's our ability to, to use it and to create the global uh, society that you're talking about that I think is going to be. I got gotcha. Important. Because I, you and know, that's what that's what you would doubt, and that's what I doubt. I, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, technology is great, and it has a lot, allowed us to do so many wonderful things. But I always question, like, how can we get something done if if we can't all get on the same page about something? Right. And how do we how do we do that? We can't force everyone to do that. We right. can't force everyone to be on the same page. So we have to figure out a way. Like I said before, how mankind came together and created these social these social contracts, yeah, right? We have to figure out how to do that and then how to let technology aid us in that. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm concerned about. And that's yeah. why I say we'll bring it on ourselves somehow. I think, I think that the, the only thing I can think of that could bring people together that way, well, there's a couple things, but the one that I hold the most hope for is art. You know, mm-hmm. The fact that big blockbuster movies are now a global phenomenon yeah, let's get some message of unity into those, uh, and that's like the one thing that Star Trek has always done better than any other uh, massive appeal audience media is to say let's move beyond where we are and yeah. become something better. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get excited when movies do really well overseas, like Jurassic World. Sure, just sure, to, to sure. know that there's something being made that has global appeal is exciting to me because I think that we can use that global appeal to to affect positive change. Hmm. I've been wondering about this recently with the terrorist attacks in France. I wonder if, because tragedy is something that brings people together. I wonder if terrorist attacks um, will be a force for positive change in the global community because we're going to realize that we need to band together to do something about it, which I think is starting to happen. Uh, I mean, World War II brought America onto the global stage um, in an interesting way because we were isolationists before that. Yes. But, but I mean, all, everything that we know about World War II is is American propaganda because you know you watch Doctor Who and they you see Doc, you see World War II through the eyes of the British and they see it very differently. Right. So right. Right. Who the fuck knows what happened? But yeah. yeah. No, I, I and and that's also one of the great things about Burns because people do seem to band together in this weird way. Yeah. Um. After you know such an event. Um. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. It's so crazy. It's so crazy, especially because the the tax on, attacks on Paris. It was like as soon as that happened, you started to see 
all this outpouring of support and love from America and, you know, especially on social media um, and all this awareness and all these hashtags. And I, I get cynical about this kind of crap because yeah. I'm like, okay, where were you when all, you know, are you paying attention to the other things that are happening in the Middle East? Are you paying attention right. to things that are happening in Africa? How come those aren't getting the same media coverage and the same right. outcry of support? You know what I mean? <laughs> and and that, that's what came out the next day is that there was a terrorist attack the day before. Exactly. That no one paid attention to. Exactly. Because it was in a Middle, East, Middle Eastern country. Yep. And that is infuriating. I did a I, – I assistant directed a play earlier this year that was all about um, uh, a genocide in, in – um, in in Africa, uh, in the eighteen uh, late eighteen hundreds, and it was and by the Germ by the Germans, Germany came in and tried to settle in in this um, place in Africa, and basically did exactly what they did in World War Two, where they set up camps and just like oh, enslaved wow. all of these people, and did all these horrible things, and very few people know about it. Yeah. And it was, and some people call it a practice Holocaust, and I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's the way to, to view it because if it's happening, it's not practice. You're actually doing it, um, but it's just interesting that it's like because it took place in this part of the world, hush hush hush, yeah. but because it took place in this part of the world with these particular people, now we're outraged. You know, so I don't know. I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I get cynical about that stuff because I'm going, hmm, but I do have hope. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you, of course. It's, I I think that the fact that I could that I could go online last night and look at someone in London on Periscope, like brushing their teeth. Um, that's crazy. What is this? Talk to me. I've never heard of Periscope. Okay, that that uh, sounds crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Periscope is this app where you just broadcast live whatever you're doing. And artists are using it. Like uh, I, I heard about it because the last episode of the Tiny Baby Talk Show was broadcast live on Periscope that I was in. And Dan, um, Dan DeRozier, and Dan O'Connell are starting this new show called Town Hall that they also broadcast on Periscope. And I hadn't heard about it before that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, you can kind of create like an event and then say we're going to put this on Periscope. If you're not here, you can wow. enjoy it at home wow. and it's okay. live. But a lot of people, I think most people are using it for very, just as social media for things that you would never think anyone else would be interested in. Huh. But because it's happening live, there's this weird sense of, of interest. Uh, it's kind of, so the last night I saw John Lovitz eating dinner and walking his dog. And <laughs> like, you, you, can leave, you can leave these broadcasts up for a couple of hours if you want to, like 24 hours, and then they're gone forever. Oh, wow. So okay. it's kind of like Snapchat right. for everyone in the world. Huh. And you, you turn on the app, and then you see a map. You see who's live, and then you can just tune in to anyone who's live. So it's, it's very, like, voyeuristic. But there was this woman given this – I just kind of – I tooled around a little bit on it because I was – I'd never been on before, and it's kind of blowing my mind. But I looked down in L.A. and New York is where most people are on in our country. Okay. Um, oh, wow. And a good amount of people in Seattle, but way more in LA and New York, which hmm. was interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Like, this is where the people who want attention are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, uh, wow. And there was this woman giving this, like, uh, motivational talk about business. Hmm. 
Um, was she just like in her house, in her like uh-huh, in a room? Just in her just house. Like, yeah. Wow. There was a woman showing off her new kitchen. There was the the things that have a lot of people viewing are people getting drunk and people getting stoned, which surprised me. And it's kind of like a chat, like where you can, if you're in there, you can say something, and everyone else who's in the room will see it also, and then the people can respond to it. Huh. Last night there was two drunk people singing songs, like acapella. Um, it's really strange. I don't know how to feel about it. Cause like part yeah. of me was really turned off and disgusted by it and disgusted in myself for wanting to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then part of me was like, well, what would I do if I was on Periscope? You know, like maybe I could play some acoustic guitar songs and my, my fans that don't live in town could see me play. Right. Uh, but, but I don't know. I mean, cause I like doing that on a YouTube video, but it seems, uh, and, and what's, what's different to do it live on the internet. There's nothing different about that. Right. Right. And if anything, it makes it more intimate because you know that I'm not editing, you know that it's real. Um, but watching somebody like there was literally someone who was just sitting there watching TV and their camera was on them watching TV. And I don't, and I don't get it. You know, (laughs) I don't see why. It kind of reminds, is chat roulette still a thing? Uh huh. I I never got into it, but I saw a video of some man doing, um, Miley Cyrus's uh, wrecking ball, his own version on chat roulette. It's actually hysterical, but yeah. it kind of reminds me of that where it's, yeah. you get to kind of just peek in on people just doing whatever. Yeah. And it's owned by Twitter. So really? I think that a lot of what's happening is people peeking in on celebrities huh. and seeing that celebrities are real people, which is kind of like what made Twitter popular Yeah, was having real celebrities in your feed. Right. Uh, but it, that's not real. That's not real human interaction. If anything, that's giving you a substitute for real human interaction. And I think this is what you were talking about with like the baby and the, the iPad. Sure, where sure. If you have a substitute, will you use the real thing or mm-hmm. will you rely on the substitute? And there's two sides to that. I mean, I like one of my best friends, Barton, just moved to New Zealand. And last night we had a, a video chat for the first time. And it was awesome. I'm like, wow, you know, you're you're thousands of miles away, thousands of dollars away, and we can just like hang out and chat still. And that's amazing. Yeah, totally. Uh, And like maybe that dad couldn't be there. Like what what about all these dads who, you know, are like enlisted and they go off to war and then they can't be here. Totally. Like those things are incredible. But but what about the person who has social anxiety and doesn't know how to get over it? uh, And now there's a new way. I don't know. Maybe that's a good way to get over it. Maybe. Okay. Uh, that's maybe legit. Maybe there's a maybe there's a good and a bad to all of this. Yeah, I think so. Maybe it's not the media. It's never the medium, right? It's it's the use. Yeah, that's exactly. The issue. Exactly. So, maybe it's just like educating people. Yeah, that's important. The more you know. That's got deep. <laughs> awesome. Um, how did you get in this play? Uh, Mr. Burns, this was crazy. Uh, it's not that crazy, yeah. <laughs> but it was crazy for me because, um, I, so basically how it happens is there's a, there's a company in town called TPS theater Puget sound and how they basically function, uh, like a, they're like a, a medium for actors to get in touch, uh, with other theater companies and to be seen. Mm. So basically you can pay a membership fee, uh, annual membership fee, and then they uh, TPS 
will email out auditions from different theater companies who submit auditions to them. And so you can set up your own auditions with all these different people. And, and then once a year, they do unified uh, auditions where you come in, you sign, you sign up for a spot, you come in, they give you two to three minutes to perform. And uh, you do a couple monologues or sing whatever you want to do. But the room is filled with artistic directors, casting oh, directors wow. from all the, all the houses in town. And so you get a chance to strut your stuff. So um, basically a year or so before, I found, um, before um, this show, I found out that act was going to be doing Mr. Burns. And I had no idea what the play was. <laughs> so I, I got a hold of a script and read it, and I immediately was like, what the fuck is this? I have to do this. So um, I signed up for TPS. I paid the membership, and I um, got to do the general auditions. And the casting director for ACT was there. Um, so she saw me there. And then I also signed up for the ACT general auditions and um, went in and performed again, and she saw me there. So I did two auditions. Didn't hear anything for months and months, and uh, they were definitely casting the play. Um, and uh, I, from my understanding, I was the last person to be cast. Really? Uh, yeah, and I guess Saving you know they'd the best been for last. <laughs> well, they'd been looking. They'd been, I guess they you know said they'd been looking and they wanted. I don't know what they were looking for, but they hadn't found it. Um, and I guess they had seen me perform, you know, a couple of times, audition a couple of times, so. They called me, and I went in, and, and um, I worked my ass off for the audition and prepared, and the audition was crazy. They were, it was kind of vague. It was, you know, read the side, and then it was like, and sing a song, and do something Simpsons-y. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what the hell does that mean? And they're like, I mean, whatever it means to you. That is what you ended up doing in the play, so I right. can see why they'd ask that. Yeah. Um, so I put together this whole, like, Simpsons bit. It was sort of based on memory and, you know, kind of, to me, spoke to the play a little bit. Um, and I went in and just did my best. And it was significant to me because um, I'm a firm believer in that anything you want to do, you can achieve if you actually believe in it and you, you know, work yeah. towards that. So this was one of the first times in my career that from start to finish, like I'm talking about maybe, you know, close to a year out, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be in this show. And I, you can't control whether you get something, you know, you can't control what happens, but you can certainly do the things that you need to do to set you up for the best possible outcome and set yeah. you up for success. And this is one of the first times in my career where I did that and it paid off. So wow. it, was, it was big for me. That's awesome. Yeah. What was it like uh, working with the cast? I mean, tell me about the rehearsal process. How long were you working towards you know, being live, and then what was it like working with these people? It was, it's one of the, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. Wow. Because um, I'm in there with hard hitters in the, the theater community. I mean, Anne Allgood is, she's Broadway. She's wow. been on Broadway in New York. Um, I, I believe Christine uh, Marie Brown has also been on, on Broadway, and and all these other people, uh, Eric, Eric Gratton, Bama Roger, like, uh, they're all fantastic. Uh, Claudine, I mean, everybody, everybody, the entire cast is phenomenal. And me, and they're all more, I'm the youngest person in the room. Yeah. And coming in, you know, two years out of, out of undergrad and I'm just coming in and trying to 
to not look like an asshole, right? <laughs> Trying to not look stupid. Well, you got um, that Brendan Fraser training, so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Monkey Bone, have you heard of it? I don't know. Yeah. I um, went to school where <laughs> Monkey Bone went to school. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, you know, I'm in there and I'm just watching them. And not to mention, John Langs is a really masterful director. Mm. Um, so, and I write. I act, I, you know, dabble in directing my degrees in uh, writing and playwriting and directing. So while I'm in the room, I'm I'm focusing on acting, but I'm also watching a masterful director do his thing. And I'm just learning so much about about staging and, and process as well. So it was a great it was a great experience. Long story short, yeah. it was amazing because I'm watching people. I'm watching actors who are fearless in what they do while also being scared shitless <laughs> because we were all in this thing going this is nuts yeah the entire third act we're all like learning that music and a lot of it's acapella and we're like oh my gosh this is crazy um but still watching people be fearless fearless and asking questions and trying to get to the bottom of of something and you know if something's not working in the room then these people would be not wouldn't be afraid to be just stop the process and be like I I don't know what the fuck's going on right now. Yeah. Can someone explain this to me? And then we can delve into it. The way um John set up the rehearsal room was basically we created everything ourselves. Like the journals that we have in the first act, those are real journals. Like we actually had our lists of, you know, we created our own lists of 10 people. Oh wow. Which was crazy for me because one of the people on my list um, during that process had a had a health scare, a really bad health scare. Wow! And that was trippy because I was like, "Fuck, she's on my list." <laughs> no. And there's uh, that moment where you're like, "Is this because I put her on my list?" Right, right. <laughs> I was like, "Did I do this?" Yeah. Um, and she's okay. I hope. No, she's yeah, she's doing really well. Yeah. Um, so that that's great, but. Um, yeah, those journals we journaled in them. There's actually they're actually filled with writing. We you know, we had a great dramaturg who would prompt us. What's that? A dramaturg is uh, someone in the room whose job it is um, to basically ask questions of the play and of the director and help help guide the rehearsal room in any way that's that's really helpful. Huh. So if there's like a line or a reference in the script that we don't get the dramaturg is the one that goes out and researches that like they would come in and be like well so in cape fear um this and this and this is what is being referenced in this line of the show so that's where you can go if you want to get that information if that makes sense or yeah, if yeah. there's a word we don't know or something's out of context they just bring all just a wealth of knowledge uh to the production that awesome. we can use um, which is which is phenomenal. So what he also did, and his name is Frank, um, was guide us in these in these guided journaling sessions. He would say, in seven years, you know, what are the things that you miss? Um, you know, so for me, it was like I miss razors. <laughs> you know, I miss <laughs> being able to shave, or like, you know, do you miss cigarettes? So sometimes someone might you know twitch a little bit, or you know, have that you know that urge to smoke, and you can't now. Or, wow. Um, or how did you meet each other? Or so he just helped us kind of build our own relationships with each other, and we would do these by journaling and then share. So we kind of all had this knowledge of each other, even though 
it's not really spoken about in the script, but it fuels us in our in our scene work. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I wanna I definitely wanna have you back on the show and talk to you about acting in general and your craft. Uh Yeah, totally. I I know we we definitely don't have time to get into that now because <laughs> I know you've got a rehearsal tonight. Um but I I really I'm having a blast, man. Like I've wanted to do this for a while. I love talking this kind of stuff with you. Um <laughs> this is great. Yeah. When you you came in to record for Sci Fi on Trial yes. about two months ago, and that hasn't even come out yet. It'll come out soon. But just listening to you talk about the movie, I was like, holy fuck, I gotta get this guy on a whole <laughs> on a whole episode. Cause you really process uh what you consume in a way that I think is similar to me, where yeah. it means a lot to you. And you are really thinking about it and you're translating it into your own life and and I, lo- I love that. That's like my favorite thing. And it, you know, it's cool to, to chat with someone else who does that. I'm, yeah, I'm digging this too. Yeah. So we're going to, we'll definitely do this again. But uh, tell me about, like, last thing, I know I got to get out of here because you got your thing, but let's just tell me about what you're doing next and where you're going and that kind of stuff. Because you're doing some cool yes. shit right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's my little John impression. Oh, if only I that could was get paid a pretty million perfect dollars to, yell. to do that. In a microphone like he does. Um, <laughs> someday. <laughs> someday. That's someday. the goal. Uh, I am about to open tomorrow night, actually, uh, a, a one-man stage version of the classic film, It's a Wonderful Life. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm The one man being you. The one man being me. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's... It's me on stage for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes or so uh, going through 14 characters and telling this story of, oh, I guess 15. I didn't think about that. Maybe 15, actually. Um, Telling the the story of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, We're we're doing a a little spin on it, though, because we're – someone else wrote the script – and as we were looking at the script, we were going, well, why the hell is this a one-man show? Why couldn't you just watch the Jimmy Stewart movie Yeah. if you want to see this? Um, so, like What's of, the point of view that's unique that makes this worth telling? Exactly. So we're kind of taking a new spin on it. Um, so it's not your classic holiday story. It's, it's still very much that story, but there's, some, there's a, a new level added to it, which I think is interesting. Oh, cool. It, it definitely touches on a lot of a lot of different things, a lot of emotional strings it tugs on. So, no, I'm really thrilled. I'm really thrilled to 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 do it. It's a great challenge for me. Yeah. It's driving me nuts. I'm getting more gray hair now. I've noticed I'm kind of Obamaing. <laughs> You're in your first term of presidency. I'm in my first term right now. So, yeah. Um, so I'm doing that and then uh that'll that'll run December 3rd through 20 through the 27th at Arts West in West Seattle. And then um Four days after that closes, I start rehearsals for a play called Buzzer, which will be back at ACT in February. Um, and that's briefly, it's uh, it's a play about a, a mid-20s lawyer, who uh, a black lawyer, who grew up in the hood and then got out of the hood and went to like Harvard and made something of himself, became a lawyer, and then moves back into his old neighborhood but as it's kind of being gentrified, so mm-hmm. now all these, all these, uh, you know, poor people are getting pushed out, and they're putting up condos, and he's, you know, moving into them, and at the same time, kind of becoming the, the, you know, the thing that he might have hated, being there as a kid. Yeah. Um, 
and he's got a he's got a girlfriend that he moves in with and his his best friend who's a drug addict comes and lives with him and a love triangle ensues and all all fun so yeah that's wow. kind of what I'll be doing that's awesome i mean you really uh it seems like you're really hitting your stride like you're in some really great stuff you're getting more roles you're uh, yeah. I mean, this is like I mean, high-profile stuff too, which is yeah. really cool. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm, I'm just I'm feeling blessed, and I'm you know trying to continue to work hard and and keep as many balls in the air as I can. So yeah, well, yeah. thanks for slumming it on my podcast. No, no, this is great. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Seriously, yeah. I'll, I I I want to come see your play. I want to see this uh, this one act play. Please, please do. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, All for right. sure. <laughs> cool, well, Andrew Lee Creech. It's been. An absolute pleasure, and I will. I'm definitely gonna ask you back on the show. Yay! It's yeah. been a motherfucking pleasure. <laughs> Peace out. This piece of music is by Hans Zimmer. It's called "Doomsday Is Family Time" from the Simpsons movie, which I felt was appropriate. I love the part in the middle of this podcast where I start gushing over how cool it is that I can podcast about something and release it the same day. Of course, then I edited this episode so that that was a statement that became false. <laughs> because I edited out of the episode that I released that day, which was the one last week, The Race to Hamanoptera, my favorite title so far, uh, and put it into this week because that's where it belonged. But the, the, the sentiment is still real because I did still release something that very day. So there you go. Anyway, since we recorded this podcast, Andrew's show has started... And the reviews are coming in, and they are awesome. Here's a little bit of a review by Amanda Knox from the West Seattle Herald. Not only is he able to conjure the energy to convince, entertain, and compel for 70 minutes all on his own, but he is brilliant at portraying unique persons through gesture, poise, inflection, and is able to flip back and forth between them in an instant. Creech's talent alone makes a ticket to wonderful life a worthy early Christmas present to oneself. There you go. That's the guy. What a guy. Go see this play. It's running at Arts West in West Seattle from December 3rd to 27th. So check it out, artswest.org, for more information. That's going to do it for this week. You've been listening to Sci-Fi with Jesse Mercury, part of the Sci-Fi Project. For more information, visit jessemercury.com or find me on Twitter at Sci-Fi Project. Whatever happens next week, it's going to be fun. I'll be there. That's all I know for sure. Hopefully you'll be there too. I, I forgot to say, almost none of my stuff was damaged. Almost nothing was damaged in this flood of my apartment. All of my recording equipment survived, which is insane. My computer got a little bit wet, dried it out, works perfectly. Fantastic. I feel really, I feel really lucky, even though I'm surrounded by boxes full of stuff. <laughs> okay, next week it is. That's it for now. Uh-huh.